So you have probably noticed that we're entering into a holiday season. If you've been down Peach Street, you've noticed that we're entering into a holiday season. Have you seen the migration of Canadian buses? <laughs> you've noticed. And you've seen the bell ringers outside the stores. And the good news for you shoppers is that Black Friday starts at midnight this year. And I was by Starbucks the other day. Do you know they're opening at 3 o'clock in the morning? For you people that need caffeine IVs, it's going to be there. This week, my wife actually put up our Christmas decorations. I know, it's horrible. For about three or four days, it looked like our basement had vomited Christmas decorations up into the upper floor. So it's all in place now, and it looks nice. As I was thinking about the holidays, I was thinking of the, um, the Dennis the Menace cartoon where... Um, He's talking to Joey, and, and Joey wants to know what the holidays are about. And so Dennis the Menace says to him, Well, Thanksgiving is when we say to God, Thank you. And Christmas is when God says back to us, You're welcome. And I like that. We had a video we're going to show you. We're going to skip that this morning. I want to go right to, to a declaration of, of this upcoming week, this declaration of, of where we feast together. And we thank God for his goodness. It was, it, was, it was a in the same manner a declaration of goodness and thanksgiving that Jesus had just left. The Jews called it the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And, and for a week they would gather in these, these booths that they would make. And in these booths they would remember what Jehovah God had done for them when he led them out of Egypt and gave them freedom and led them on their journey and brought them to a land of promise. And so they would celebrate that with a great feast, a thanksgiving to God for giving them freedom. Five days before that event would start was what was called the Day of Atonement. This is when the high priest, high priest would bring the sacrifices that he would lay before God and, and on the, the Holy of Holies in, into that, that, that atonement seat. And there at the atonement seat the nation would receive God's forgiveness. Together, these two events within two weeks would declare there is a freedom brought about by God's forgiveness. So it was the day following the final day of the feast that Jesus in the early morning hours was in the temple. And so Jesus then sat down taking the posture of a rabbi that is about to instruct and the crowds gathered around him and Jesus began to teach. In the midst of his lesson, there was this, this commotion, and the Pharisees and the, the, the lawyers of the, of the law came flying in, dragging a woman. And they said to Jesus, this rabbi, they said, we found this woman in an affair. Now, what will you do with this? And what they didn't understand is that Jesus was about to take the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles and bring it down to that very moment and teach them about freedom and forgiveness in a way they had never seen it before. And so the confrontation went like this. John, a follower of Jesus, records it in John 8. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and he taught them. And as he was preaching, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. 
What do you say? Pastor Chuck Swindoll years ago talked about when he was walking in his own city where he was pastoring, he came across one of the members of his church who was standing there smoking, and the guy felt guilty about smoking when he saw the pastor coming. So not having time, because the pastor was right there on top of him, but not having chance to do anything with it, Swindoll said he took a cigarette and put it in his pocket. Swindoll taking note of this, the guy was hoping that Swindoll would just come by and say hi and move on. Swindoll, seeing that, decided to stop and engage the man in conversation. The guy kept trying to break away from the conversation, and he wouldn't let him, with smoke beginning to billow out of the pocket. Finally, the guy had to bring out the cigarette, had to confess that there he was. And, and, and later on, Swindoll said the moral of the whole story was this. Do not try to act innocent when you're holding a smoking disobedience. This lady was holding a smoking disobedience. And they said, now what will you do with this? Will you let her off the hook? Because she's not worthy of being forgiven. And what they're about to discover from Jesus is this, that Jesus' forgiveness is not based on our innocence. They stand her up in front of Jesus and the crowd. You've got to understand the humiliation that she was in. Some scholars think that perhaps she was very disheveled and maybe partly clothed because they just yanked her out of where she was and brought her before to, a sh- to bring her shame. And everything that she did at that moment when she was caught was the very thing that the rabbi detested. And yet what Jesus was about to do would absolutely shock them. His response will startle them. There was a lady who left one church to go to another church. And her friend said, why did you leave that church and go to another church? And she said, well, the pastor of the, other, the former church told us that we're all going to hell because we're sinners. And she said, well, what about the new pastor? What does he tell you? He says we're going to hell too. She said, well, what's the difference? She said, well, the first one, when he tells us we're going to hell, seems to be glad about it. <laughs> and the second one seems to have his heart broken every time he speaks of it. Jesus knows this is a trap. He knows that Leviticus 22, the law of Moses, states that when someone's found in adultery, both the man and the woman shall be brought before the leaders and they shall be punished. And in this case, they shall be stoned. You say, you mean an affair? Was was that criminal? They could be stoned? Absolutely. In fact, understand that 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 kind of offense of adultery was the same as murder, would be treated the same way as kidnapping, the same as witchcraft, the same as human sacrifice, and the same as being a fan of the New York Yankees. I'm telling you. (laughs) Okay, I added the last one. This man was involved in the setup. That is the only way they could really understand when and where to barge in. And yet he was not there because this was a trap to get Jesus. It really had nothing to do with the woman. They were after Jesus. And Jesus now is faced with an understanding that if he does not condemn her, he has broken the Mosaic law. And if he does condemn her, then it brings in doubt all of this that he has spoken previously about compassion of God. And in addition, he will break the Roman law because no Jew was allowed to participate in corporal punishment. There could not be capital punishment. It could not happen. 
this is not really about her. This is really about Jesus. And she is collateral damage. It's that that same proverbial story that you'll see in the movies where the convict escapes from from prison and he goes back after the prosecuting attorney because he wants revenge. And as he goes after the prosecuting attorney, the best way he can do that is to take down his family. And so he attacks the family. Jesus understands as he's looking at this crowd, as he's looking at these religious rulers, as he's looking at this woman, that this is nothing more than him and the one who is his arch enemy, the one that he cast away from heaven. His name is Lucifer, who held a high position in heaven. And because of his rebellion, his insurrection was tossed back down into this earth, away from where he wanted to be. And he wants revenge. And for his revenge, he knows that the best thing to do is take down God's family. And it breaks Jesus' heart. And we are collateral damage. So you sit here today and you're really dealing with a drug addiction. You may be an alcoholic. You you may still be slandering that lady who got the promotion and it just really made you angry and so you're tearing her down so that you can feel better about yourself. You may still be cheating on your finals so that you can keep your scholarship. The bottom line is that all of us are guilty. None of us are innocent. And when I ask you the question, what are you guilty for? You know there's something. And in your mind, you're rehearsing it right now. Paul the Apostle declared that when he wrote to the Romans in Romans 3, verse 23. Since we've compiled this long and sorry record of sinners and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us, God did it for us. You see, here she stands. She's guilty. Here we stand next to her. We are guilty. And Jesus' response actually astonishes them because they thought he was going to let her off the hook, but instead he agrees that she has broken the Mosaic law, that that there is a problem here that has to be resolved. And what he's going to inform them is this, that there is no forgiveness eligibility standard. There is, see, that the Pharisees thought, okay, there's some things we can do that are not so good, but they're still forgivable, they'll be fine. But then you can't go do these things. You, you, can, you can do armed robbery, but you can't murder. You, you can, because you're just childish or young or, or just a young adult, and you, you, can, you can be seduced and have sex in college, but, but boy, don't you dare then have adultery and get older and break up a marriage. And so they have these standards. And Jesus is going to make it very clear by his response that all sin is all sin, and it's all sin. But because it's all sin, then forgiveness covers all sin. It's not just forgiveness for this half and not for this half, but it covers the whole thing. And so Jesus looks and understands that he, he understands that he's looking beyond the accusers and the accused, and he's looking at the fact that there is someone who hates him. And he understands it's more about the hatred of him than the inability of the criminal. And the bottom line is that we are collateral damage and it breaks Jesus' heart. See, the sin you're in, it's breaking his heart. He's not mad at you. He's not angry at you. It's breaking his heart because he knows the source of all that. 
And there is no sin that Jesus will push out of his heart that he cannot forgive. He doesn't say, I'll cover these, but you can't have this. She can't do anything. She's caught. And she knows that the only one who stands between her and her death, her penalty for her sin, is Jesus. And the only one who stands between your penalty and you is Jesus. Between you and your penalty, her and her penalty, and as the Pharisees would soon discover, between them and their penalty, because they too are not innocent. In fact, Jesus will let us know this, that his forgiveness is not based on comparisons. Do you see what these self-righteous chauvinists have done? They have tried to inflict an accusation of an adulterous relationship on her to justify the murder that will take place. It was their scheme. And how often do we excuse ourselves by saying, well, my sin is not as bad as this, or look what they did so that I can go do this thing. And so we hide our sins because we just do a comparison. I'm not as bad as that person, so I should be okay. But sin is sin. There was a survey that was done a few years back, and the question was asked of 15 prominent figures, who was most likely to go to heaven? So they listed 15 prominent figures and said, which of these do you think would be more likely to go to heaven? Mother Teresa got 79%. 79% of people said she will go to heaven. Oprah got 66%. Bill Clinton got 52%. Pat Robertson got 47%. Dennis Rodman got 28%. O.J. Simpson got 19%. But none of those celebrities received the highest score of 87%. 87% believed that they themselves would go to heaven compared to everybody else. And when we feel that way, Jesus kneels down and begins to write in the dirt. And John continues the story, John 8. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust... With his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and he said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. What did he write? We're not sure, but scholars think, some think that he wrote the Ten Commandments in the dirt because we've all broken at least one. How many have broken at least one of the Ten Commandments? Turn to the person next to you and tell them which one. No, don't do that. Don't, don't do it. Some scholars think that he was writing down actual sins of the individual accusers. Because you see, they're thinking, nobody knows. And Jesus says, okay, just so that you'll know that somebody knows. See, that, that, that word to write down is, is the Greek word katagrapho, which means to describe, and the nuance there is to make a list. And so he's making a list. Some think that he wrote down exactly what God's finger had written in Daniel, the fifth chapter. Mene, mene, tekel, upsharon, meaning you are weighed in the balance and you are found wanting. So Jesus makes it really clear that if you're going to condemn, then you have to be absolutely innocent. 
And the innocent one then can take the stone. And in the stoning in those days, the person who had the accusation, the person who was innocent of the crime, could take, and generally it was a large stone to begin the stoning, to try to snuff out the life with one throw. And if that person wasn't dead at that moment, then all of those who would gather with the accuser would also accuse, and they would throw their stones and snuff out that life. Things haven't changed much. Because watch what we do to each other. We see each other and we say, oh, look what they did. And we blame them and we throw our stone and others gather around us and say, yeah, they did. And we throw stones at each other. Pam and I have some friends who live a gay lifestyle. And they are rather eccentric people. And recently they were actually on a television program. And... I went on Facebook, and I, and I saw some people beginning to describe that they had just seen our friends on Facebook, and then, the, then these derogatory remarks, these stones began to be thrown at them, their lifestyle, their eccentricities, who they were. And so I went on Facebook, and I just said, they're friends of Pam and mine. They've sat at our table and eaten our food. They're really good people. Some dropped the stones, but others kept throwing. It is interesting to me that Jesus is recorded of having dinner. There's eight, eight descriptions of Jesus sitting down with people to eat with them. One of those is at the, the first miracle at the wedding at Cana. One of those is with Mary and Martha. One of those is after his resurrection in Emmaus as he reveals himself to some disciples. The remaining five are with objectionable people that, that both society and religion would say, you can't be with that person. It's the people that they would throw stones at. And Jesus, by eating with them, was saying, don't throw stones. I love these people. They're my friends. Because you don't sit down and eat a meal unless you say, we have friendship. I was on a, a, a church staff, and we were in a boardroom and having a staff meeting, and the senior pastor was declaring the schedule and telling us that there was a group coming to sing and had been in the church, I think, about 10 times. And, and most of us were getting tired of the, these people coming because we just it was the same. And, and it was just a bad attitude on our part. And the pastor was excited because they're his friends and that they're coming again. And, and while he turned his back to write something on the board, the music pastor turned to the rest of us and she went like this. Well, as she did that, the senior pastor turned around and saw her. And boy, was he upset. He lit into her right in front of us, and it wasn't a good thing, and told her just what he thought of that and how wrong it was, and she was being inconsiderate, and he went through the whole thing, and if you don't like it, you can leave. And, and when she got done, or he got done, one of the staff guys, a friend of mine, looked at the senior pastor and with great courage said, well, pastor, haven't you ever made a mistake? And it just shut him down. He did it with respect. But he said, I'm not going to let you throw stones without us all realizing that all of us make mistakes. So, so Jesus is standing there saying, wait a minute. Before you try to throw stones, let me stand on her behalf. And that's what Jesus does for us. Because Jesus knows how we feel. And so Jesus then continues to write, and the Scripture says this in John 8 9. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. So the bottom line is either the older guys had more sins than everybody else or the more wisdom, but they cleared out first. 
and it's just Jesus and this woman. Now what's Jesus going to do with this woman? Because if innocence is the only qualifier and the qualifier for her to be stoned, then Jesus is the one who can do that because he has total innocence. Yet he looks at her and his heart breaks. His heart breaks in the same manner that it would break when he would be in that great parade coming down into Jerusalem just before his last supper and then his execution and his resurrection. And as the parade is going down, he stops the parade and he looks over Jerusalem and he begins to weep as his heart is broken and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, if only you knew, if only you knew, if only you knew, if only you knew how much I care and I want to draw you like little little chicks under the hen's wings and take care of you, if only you knew. See, what it is is an expression of mercy. And that, that whole thing of mercy really means to crawl inside someone else's skin and see and what they're seeing and feel what they're feeling. And Jesus said, my heart is breaking because I know what you're feeling. Later, the author of Hebrews would talk about how Jesus feels what we feel. And he would say this in Hebrews 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has, just, has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. So then let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because he, he's felt it. He knows his heart's broken for us so that we may receive what? Mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And what's amazing about this is when those, when those guys left, when the accusers left, she could have gone because the accusers were gone, but she stands there with Jesus because she's beginning to understand totally who she is. She knows that she is wrong. She knows she has done wrong. She knows she's broken the law. She knows she's a sinner. And she then affirms that it's me. But she also is beginning to understand what Jesus is doing. She begins to understand what he has done for her. And isn't that what we're hap- what's happening to us? We're talking about joining a journey. We're on a journey of realizing who we are and what Jesus is doing has done for us. G.K. Chesterton responded to a London Times question asking what was wrong with the world. And so he wrote to the editors, and his, his reply was this, Dear sirs, in response to your question, what is wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. He comes down to the place, you go, this is me, this, I am, I'm the problem. Those accusers have just had their wounds revealed. They just realize that they're not innocent, but they're not hanging around because they are more involved in, in the facade, more involved in covering their, their guilt so that they could look innocent. And this woman decided, I'm not going to do that any longer. Instead, she said, I'm going to press into mercy. And it's a good thing she did because this is what... We're, This is what happened. John records it, John 8, verse 10. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? She said, no, Lord. And Jesus said, catch this, the rabbi speaking, neither do I. Go and sin no more. He said, wait, 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 wait. She's guilty. She's guilty. She's absolutely guilty. This woman is guilty. And if you can't keep justice where it needs to be, then there's no integrity If Jesus does not follow the rules, then we don't have to follow the rules. And didn't Jesus say, I didn't come to abolish the rules, I came to fulfill the rules. See, the bottom line is that about a year after this encounter, 
Jesus of Nazareth is executed. He's hung on a cross. And he speaks these words. Father, forgive them. And in those simple words, he validates the words he said a year earlier when he said, neither do I condemn you. You see, on that day of atonement, amazing thing would happen. They would bring two goats in. They would take one goat and they would, they would kill the goat and take the blood and they would enter back into the Holy of Holies to the seat of atonement and they would sprinkle the blood because, you see, when there's sin, there must be death. And so this blood of this perfect animal, this goat, is covering their sin. Then the priest would come out and he would take another goat, another perfect goat, and he would lay his hands on the goat and he would then take the sins of the nation and place them on the goat known as the scapegoat. They would then lead the goat out into the wilderness and let it go. Scholars say what was actually happening is those sins are placed on that goat and they are to be sent back from whence they came, back to the source of the sin. These sins no longer apply to these people. They go back to where they came from, to the root, to the source of the sin. A prophet of Isaiah, prophet Isaiah said of Jesus and of this atonement, these words, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. It was his blood for us. Our sins were sent back to their source. And Jesus is the only place our guilt can go and be excused. Jesus didn't condemn her because he himself was condemned for her. So the bottom line is this. I can't justify my sins by comparison with yours because when I do, Jesus just kneels down and writes in the dirt. See, this world is not divided into the righteous and the unrighteous. It is divided into the sinners who say I'm a sinner and the sinners who deny that they're sinners. And Jesus said to all of those sinners, my forgiveness demands repentance. So Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. Stop making sin the habit of your life. That word go, go now, literally means from the now. Look, grace and mercy have come to you. It's here now, so go from this now and walk in this grace and mercy from this point on. Let this be your journey, a journey of grace and mercy. And it is not the length of the journey that determines the amount of mercy. It is the connection at that moment in the journey. This is Dee Sarton. I want to show you a picture of Dee Sarton. She is a network, network anchor for KTVB in Boise, Idaho. I haven't talked to Dee Sarton. In fact, the last time I talked to Dee Sarton was January 6th. 1994. That morning she interviewed me and she talked to me about the execution of Keith Wells and I've shared that story with, with you here before. Uh, Keith Wells was the first person executed in Idaho State Penitentiary since 1957. And so they, they asked me to lead Keith through his journey into death because I had been leading Keith in his journey with Jesus. Keith Wells went to prison for the first time at age 17. Three times he was released and put back pretty quick. 
His third time that, that he was released and, and, and brought back in, I, I was hanging out with him. I was spending time in the penitentiary with him, and we were talking about his journey with Jesus. And the problem with Keith in that process was that, that he wanted Jesus and what Keith wanted. He wanted Jesus and the life that he was going to live because Keith wanted to keep control. He was a big control freak. And so Keith never really, really connected with Jesus in the way that he needed to that would be a transformational in his life. He, he said the words, I want Jesus, but it never transformed him. So it was about 36 hours before he was to be executed that I began spending time with him in that penitentiary. In those 36 hours, he began to tell me his story. He, he told me that his first drink, alcoholic beverage, was at age four. He was totally addicted to drugs by age 10. In ninth grade, he already began robbing and stealing to support his drug habit. He said from an early age, he always sensed this evil on him, this, this, this presence on him that would drive him and voices that would speak to him and that, would, that told him that someday in his life he would kill people. In 1990, when he had... Been, out of prison for several months on a snowy evening in Boise, Idaho. He found a couple closing up, young adults closing up a tavern, and he bludgeoned them to death. No one knew who did the murder until Keith's wife began to put pieces together and found some evidence, went to the authorities. They began the investigation, and Keith put a contract out on his wife to kill her so she couldn't testify. That's the kind of guy we're dealing with. So on the evening before his 1201 scheduled execution, Keith finds freedom. For the first time in his life, because he said that it was like Jesus put a video screen in front of him and showed him everything he had done and blamed everybody else for, and he said, no, that's me. I am the one. I did this. And then somehow it finally connected. He heard Jesus say to him inside, and neither do I condemn you. And he found forgiveness. We had communion together just before they took him away and so that we could seal that. And all we could grab at that last minute was a dinner roll and a, and a bottle of grape Snapple. And he said, Jesus, I, I trust you with my life. As short as it's going to be, I trust you now because I think there's a future. For the first time ever, he really experienced mercy. And, and, he, and he experienced love. And, and there's this thing about when you really truly experience mercy and God's love, it not only fills you up, but then it makes you like Jesus so that you have to express it back out. I mean, it's one of the pure signs of a person who's being transformed. They love other people. They have mercy for other people. You find someone who's not merciful or loving, then they're not really connected with Jesus. And so Keith, up to this point, had had no mercy, obviously, on those he had murdered, but also on the families. He hated the families. He didn't even know why, but he hated the families of the victims. And so he had, he had not said anything to them, and he just hated them. He cursed them. But that night, there was such a transformation. He said, I've got to ask them for their forgiveness. And we're just about 10, 15 minutes away before they take him to the execution chamber. So he says to the guard, I, I need a phone. And he turns to me and says, who can I call? I said, call D. Sarton, because I see, I know D would understand this because she's a follower of Jesus. So he calls 
the TV station. She's not there. They call her and say, he's going to call you. It's midnight. They wake her up. And, and so she gets the news, and she heads back to the station to say to the, to the, to the, the parents and, and the relatives to communicate that and then report what's happened to Keith. It's such a transformation for Keith that, that when he's laying there on the table and they're getting ready to, to put, the, put the IV in, and, and up to that point he told me that he was pretty well just going to flip off everybody he was witnessing and, and, and just make a big scene. But at that moment, Jesus had changed him. And so his last words, as I walked away from him, was, into your hands I commit my spirit. Isn't that what Jesus wants for all of us? Isn't that the journey we're in? Into your hands, I commit my spirit, I commit my life, I commit everything we sang it earlier. Isn't that the deal? Whether it's 50 years until our death or 50 minutes until our execution. So Dee called me this last week because Idaho this last week executed a man for the first time since Keith's execution and she was doing background stories. She said, can you tell me what happened that night that made Keith call me? So I explained to her everything I talked to you about this morning. And then she said this, but what are we going to tell the skeptics who say that he just used God and he doesn't deserve to be forgiven? I said, tell them they're right. He did use God. He didn't deserve to be forgiven. But mercy deserved is not mercy at all. There is not this place where God says, I'll take you this far, but if you do this beyond this point, my mercy will not cover you. And you see, on that early morning in the temple, there were some religious leaders who thought that was true, but they're wrong. They were right about two things. The first is this, that the only payment for our sin comes through death. They're right about that. The second thing they were right about is this. When you find a person trapped in sin... The only good thing you can do is bring them to Jesus. They're right about that. So some of you here today feel condemned. You feel like stones have been thrown at you. You feel like you're standing there with her. You feel like, yes, I'm guilty, and you don't know what to do. Press into his mercy, because you'll hear him say, and neither do I condemn you. Today is your day of freedom. Today is your day of journey with him. Today is that from now on, from this point on, you get to travel in mercy and his grace. Today is your day of atonement. It's your freedom. So in this spot, in this moment, in the declaration of his word, in the truth that's sinking deep inside of you, that yes, you've messed up, Yes, you stand there, and yes, you need something to change. Hear Jesus say, neither do I condemn you, because he, on that day of atonement, gave his blood for you, and your sins are taken away. It is the beginning of your journey. It is a journey of grace and mercy that transcends what's happening in this world today and takes you into what God created for us forever and ever and ever. And so I don't want you to leave here today without having an opportunity to say to Jesus, I want that, and press into his mercy. And so in just a moment, I'm going to have you stand in the reverence of this moment, and please do not depart. Do not leave until I finish this. And don't break this reverence, so just stand if you will.
We are community. And the reason that we're still here on this earth after coming into this journey with Jesus is because he said, I want you to let everybody know what I've done. And that's what we're doing this morning. And so I'm going to invite you in just a moment to turn to the people next to you and just say, would you like to come to Jesus? And if that's you, if you just really want to know that that you can be cleansed and and begin a journey that is full of his grace and mercy, then say yes. And as you say yes, then you and the person who's asked you are going to come stand right here with me. I'm not going to single you out or embarrass you, but we're going to have a prayer together. It's, It's a physical evidence of faith that's happening on the inside. But so often Jesus said, I need to see something on the outside. And so in just a moment, I'm going to turn, have you turn and ask each other. And, and you may have asked them before. You may not know who they are. But there's no more important question than this, than this question. Do you want to come to Jesus? And so when that person says yes, you bring them. And if you say yes, that person will come with you. So now just right where you are in the galleries, the balcony, the main floor, the lobby, wherever you may be, just turn and ask each other that question. Would you do that? Just turn to each other right now. Say, would you like to come to Jesus? And then come stand by me. That's it. That means you've got to talk to each other. Come on. Breathe through your vocal cords. Form the words. So I'd like to come to Jesus. That's it. Come on, there's more of you, I know. That's it. Come on. If you're in the galleries, you can just, in the balcony, you can just come down the steps. That's it. Come on. That's it. You may have said, well, I wanted to say yes, but I was afraid you were going to do something weird, and now these people are coming down. I wish I would have. Then just turn to the person and say, change my mind. That's great. So what I want to do is just lead you in a prayer that comes straight from the Holy Scriptures because it's truth. I just want you to repeat this after me and let it come from your heart as we begin this process of of journeying with Jesus. And these folks that are standing around you will encourage you by also praying it out loud with you. So would you pray with me? Say, Dear Jesus, I want to journey with you. So I declare that I've sinned, that I am a sinner, and I press into your mercy. For you promised, if I confess my sins, You're faithful and just to forgive me for my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So I believe right now you've forgiven me and I'm clean. My sins are gone. And according to your word, you give me the right to be a child of God. So I declare by faith that I'm your child. Now guide me in this journey. I submit my life to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. That's wonderful. So, so here's what I would just stay right where you are. Because this is more than just a decision, this is a lifestyle, this is a journey, we have some gifts for you to guide you in that journey. And so in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to go out these doors right here. And Jeff Williams is going to be your guide to those doors. And you're going to go back in the choir room and nothing weird or wacky is going to happen to you there. And the folks that you came with will be glad to just wait for you. We won't take very long time at all, but we want to give you some things to help you on this journey because you've made the most incredible decision. So God's blessings be on you today. May you find yourself in his favor. We love you.
So would you just follow Jeff and just go up those steps? If you can't make the steps, the ushers will help you out the back. I thought we'd end the service by having Pastor Don come do a wrap, but we won't do that tonight or today. But let me pray for you. So now may you once again in a fresh way discover God's mercy and grace for you. May you celebrate it today with great joy. May you be enthused with thankfulness toward him and every hour of every minute of the days to come, give him thanks for all that he has done for you and may you find yourself in his incredible favor and may it bring you joy as it brings him joy. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray, amen. Have a great day.